Well, there's nothing worse than thinking that you see things correctly when you don't. On a winter day in 1985, China Airlines Flight 006 demonstrated this fact. The Boeing 747 was 41,000 feet above the Pacific, almost 10 hours into its 11-hour flight from Taipei to LA when engine number four lost power. The plane began to lose airspeed. Rather than taking manual control and descending below 30,000 feet to restart the engine as prescribed in the flight book, the crew held at 41,000 with the autopilot engaged and attempted a restart. Meanwhile, loss of the outboard engine gave the plane asymmetrical thrust. The autopilot tried to correct for this and kept the plane, keep the plane level, but the plane continued to slow. As the plane continued to slow, it also began to roll to the right. The captain was aware of the deceleration, but not to the extent to which the plane had entered a right bank. Though the inner ear would normally sense balance and spatial orientation, because of the plane's trajectory, the captain had the sensation of flying level. Correct procedure called for applying left rudder to help raise the right wing, but his focus was on the airspeed indicator and on the efforts of the first officer and engineer to restart the engine. As its bank increased, the plane descended through 37,000 feet into high clouds, which obscured the horizon. The captain switched off the autopilot and pushed the nose down to get more speed, but the plane had already rolled beyond 45 degrees and now turned upside down and fell into an uncontrolled descent. The crew were confused by the situation. They understood the plane was behaving erratically, but they were unaware that they had overturned and were in a dive. They could no longer discern thrust from engines one through three and concluded that the engines had quit as well. The plane's dive was evident from their flight gauges, but the angle was so unlikely the crew decided that the gauges had failed. At 11,000 feet, they broke through the clouds, astonished to see that they were roaring towards the earth. The captain and first officer pulled back hard on the stick, exerting enormous forces on the plane, but managing to level off. Landing gear hung from the plane's belly, and they'd lost one of their hydraulic systems, but all four engines came back to life, and the captain was able to fly on, diverting successfully to San Francisco. An inspection revealed just how severe their maneuver had been. Strains five times the force of gravity had bent the plane's wings permanently upward, broken two landing gear struts and torn away two landing gear doors and large parts of the rear horizontal stabilizers. Spatial disorientation is the aeronautical term for a deadly combination of two elements, losing sight of the horizon and relying on human sensory perception that doesn't jive with reality, but is so convincing that pilots conclude their cockpit instruments have failed. The crew thought they had per 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 perceived things correctly when they did not, and they relied on their own perception instead of the gauges in the plane. They needed to recognize their perception was skewed, that effectively they were blind, and to listen well to what the gauges were saying. In many ways, this story illustrates our passage today. See, we return this morning to Matthew. We've been going through Matthew over the course of a couple years now. And uh, where we're at, you remember first that Matthew is structured around five main teaching sections by Jesus. Sermon on the Mount, 
a mission discourse, parables about the kingdom, and, uh, and others as well. And surrounding those teaching sections, we have Jesus and his disciples' narrative showing who Jesus is, showing him gathering disciples, and as we're at, where we're at in our story this morning, in the narrative of the text, Jesus heading towards Jerusalem. You see, after Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ in chapter 16, immediately after that, Jesus begins to say that he's going to go to Jerusalem to suffer, to die, and to rise again. And in chapters 19 through 20, where we've been in the last, since the last main teaching section in chapter 18, in chapters 19 through 20, Jesus has been confronting different individuals about their values, about their cultural values, but not just those individuals, but also but also his disciples, his disciples who have imbibed those cultural values and who need them, need them corrected as well. And so we've seen that. We've seen the rich young guy, we've seen the Pharisees, and we've seen even James and John asking for great seats in the kingdom of heaven. But in the midst of all of that, in the midst of Jesus correcting his disciples' perception, there have been, or there, there has been an exemplary model for discipleship. And that exemplary model has been children. That started actually in chapter 18, but in chapter 19, you remember that the children were being brought to Jesus, the disciples were rebuking them, and Jesus says, let the little children come to me because to such as these belongs the kingdom of heaven. And so the children are held out as this model of discipleship in the sense that utter dependence, utter dependence on God, utter dependence on Jesus, if you come with that attitude of utter dependence on Jesus, you are going to be blessed by him. But we get a second model this morning, a second model in addition to children for what disciples coming to Jesus and following Jesus ought to look like, and it comes in the form of two blind men. If you want to know what the model of discipleship looks like according to Jesus, it looks like being a little child, utterly dependent, and being blind, being blind. And so as we enter the text this morning, here is the main idea Plead with Jesus to open your eyes and follow him as the son of David into suffering and conquest. Plead with Jesus to open your eyes and follow him as the son of David into suffering and conquest. There's two sections in the text that we look at this morning and we could frame them this way. First, in verses 29 through 31, we could ask this question. Do you see who Jesus is? If so, persistently plead for his mercy. Do you see who Jesus is? If so, persistently plead for his mercy. Look at verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho. Now, this is a geographic designator and you have to remember the context of the geographic movement of Jesus. Most of his ministry, he's been in the north, in Galilee, in Capernaum, and uh, thereabouts, going around the Sea of Galilee, proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. But after, um, after Peter confessed him to be the Christ, uh, I already said right after that, Jesus predicts, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. And Jesus has reiterated that multiple times. And as he's reiterated that, they have gradually made their way south from Galilee down to, towards at least, Jerusalem. 
towards Jerusalem. And so where they've been in the last couple chapters, they've been in the area of Judea. They've been on the east side of the Jordan. And now they've crossed the Jordan and are going through Jericho. Jericho. Now what you have to understand about a little geography here, Jericho is at the base. It's kind of in this low spot. And uh, when you want to approach Jerusalem from Jericho, you've got to take a 3,500-foot climb over multiple miles, well over a dozen uh, miles, up to Jerusalem. So this is a very steep climb up to Jerusalem. And pilgrims coming for Passover, remember it's Passover time, there's all these people flooding into Jerusalem, would come and take this ascent into Jerusalem, 3,500 feet, very steep. And the journey from Jericho to Jerusalem would take about a day. That just gives you a sense of where we're at. We're about a day away from Jerusalem, and they've got this great climb coming out from Jerusalem up from Jericho. Now, who's the they here? As they went out of Jericho. Well, the most recent um, indicator, the last section, was when uh, James and John made the request to Jesus, and Jesus is talking to his disciples. So the they here is the disciples. The disciples are going out. The disciples with Jesus are going out from Jericho. And a great crowd followed him. This isn't just the great crowd of pilgrims that are coming for Passover. This is a great crowd following Jesus. And we've seen the crowd throughout Matthew. The crowd effectively becomes a character in the book of Matthew. And you remember, the character of the crowd is somewhere in between disciple and op- uh, uh, enemy. So if you've got the disciples on one hand who have repented and placed their faith in Jesus and they're following him, they don't understand everything yet, but they're following Jesus. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are actively opposing Jesus. The crowds seem to be right in the middle in the sense that they're interested in Jesus. They like to hear what he has to say. They like the healings, but they're not ready to commit to being a disciple. And so that's who the crowds have been, but they're still following along. They like Jesus. They like what he has to say. They, they like his healing. So they're still following him as they go out of Jericho and as he's heading towards Jerusalem. Verse 30, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. Now, why are they sitting by the roadside? They're probably begging. Uh, usually when Uh, Around the feast times, when people are coming into Jerusalem, it's a very fruitful time to beg. It's not essential to the story, but that's probably why they're sitting there. Two blind men sitting by the roadside, very public, very open. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they heard, obviously they're blind, they heard that Jesus was passing by. They cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, as soon as you see this scene and you see the two blind men sitting on the side of the road, uh, there should be a little bit of a, a, um, a niggle at the back of your mind. Because this is not the first time we've seen two blind men in the book of Matthew. In fact, it's the second Uh, The first, if you want to, turn back to Matthew 9. Matthew 9 is the first time that we see two blind men. Now, here's the thing. Anytime when an author, especially a biblical author, is narrating and he um, he gives a situation 
That's not necessarily identical to a previous situation, but pretty close. Uh, what he's doing is he's saying, hey, remember that? Compare and contrast. Compare and contrast. So a lot of what we're going to do this morning, we're going to jump to nine, and we want to see the comparison and contrast between what happened with the first pair of two blind men and what's going to happen with the second pair. In chapter nine, verses 27 to 31, uh, Jesus encounters two blind men for the first time. He encounters other blind men, but as far as the pair, uh, it's this, this time that it happens first. Now, just a little bit of context. Jesus has just gotten finished with the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7. Chapters 8 and 9, Jesus does many miracles displaying his authority. So he's displayed his authority in teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, but he's displaying his authority in miracles in chapters 8 and 9. And by the time we get to the end, basically of that, him displaying his authority in terms of miracles, giving foretaste of the coming kingdom, he says this. He encounters these two blind men. Verse 27, chapter 9. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? See, he understands what their request entails. They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. Now, what's interesting in that segment there is um, Jesus silences the blind men, doesn't he? He calls them to be quiet, very similar actually to the silencing or the attempted silencing of the blind men in chapter 20. But why in chapter 9 is Jesus silencing the blind men? And why is he doing it in such a private location? He's doing it in a house. It's not out in the open. He kind of weird, actually, he has two blind men. He doesn't respond to the two blind men. He doesn't respond to them until they follow him. The blind men follow him into the house. Why does he do this? Well, what you have to understand is this title that the blind men in chapter 9 are using and the blind men in chapter 20 are using, the son of David, is a loaded term. It's a loaded term. Because when you talk about the son of David, when you use that title, you are ascribing the messianic status of Jesus. And what does that mean? Son of David, it refers to the Davidic covenant in the Old Testament where God had promised to David, uh, you will not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel. And ultimately that gets developed not only over the throne of Israel, but over the whole world. The son of David, the ultimate Davidic king is going to rule over Israel and not only over Israel, but all the nations of the world. And the son of David is going to have a signature messianic move. His signature messianic move, it's kind of like a signature move in other areas of Uh, that you think of with people, the signature messianic move is healing the blind. You look in Isaiah and you find that the ultimate Davidic king, the one who's going to bring priests to not only Israel, but to the whole world, he's going to heal the blind. And so Jesus, though, doesn't want his healing of these two blind men to become known, and he doesn't want that connected with the title Son of David. Why? Well, what we understand is in the first century Israel, Israel had a skewed vision of who the Messiah was to be. 
They thought of him primarily as a military and political ruler, and he is. Jesus is a military and political ruler. He is, but that's not all he is. And if he just goes around and starts healing blind people and uh, using the title Son of David, people are going to misunderstand what is meant. It's very similar to why Jesus, at the end of chapter 16, when Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah, the same person as the son of David, uh, Jesus tells his disciples, don't say anyone that I'm the Christ. Why? Because people are going to misunderstand. What is the missing piece? The missing piece is what Jesus reiterates over and over again after that confession of Peter, for uh, Jesus to be the Christ, that he needs to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die and rise again. It disturbed the disciples. They didn't understand, and certainly Israel at large didn't understand. So that at least is why Jesus, because of common misconception of who the son of David is and to be, that's why he silences the blind men. But Jesus isn't the only person to silence blind men and the use of the title son of David. Turn to Matthew 12. Matthew 12, we get kind of a similar situation in a sense. Uh, What happens in Matthew 11 and 12 is increasing opposition to Jesus um, is happening, that, it, um, that the crowds aren't repenting and believing, and even worse, the scribes and the Pharisees are actively in opposition, and it culminates in what we see in chapter 12, verses 22 and following. Listen to this. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. So signature messianic move, he heals a blind guy, and notice what happens. Verse 23, and all the people, so the crowd, were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? You see, they're putting the pieces together, they're, they're seeing what Jesus is doing, and they're thinking, oh man, this is the son of David, maybe this is the Messiah. They're not sure, they're, they're uncertain, but notice what happens, verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And there we see the active opposition of the leadership in Israel against using the title Son of David. Why did they do it? Why did the Pharisees silence the use of the title Son of David out of hatred and envy? They don't want a contender for their leadership, and so they seek to suppress the use of the Son of David. So you got Jesus, on the one hand, not wanting the title Son of David to be used because it's misunderstood, and on the other hand, you've got his enemies not wanting that title used because of hatred and envy. And then we get back to Matthew 20. Matthew 20, we've got the crowd rebuking the blind men telling them to be silent. They're crying out. Um, the, the, the blind men have heard about Jesus. They know his teaching, evidently, by hearing about it. They can't see it, right? They can't follow, but they've heard about it. They've heard about his reputation, and they're crying out, Lord, have mercy on a son of David. And the crowd, the crowd rebukes these two blind men, telling them to be silent. Why? Well, probably because they know The Pharisees don't want this title used. And maybe they understand that maybe Jesus doesn't want this title used as well. And so maybe some of it is they're trying to be respectful of him. But probably more likely it's, 
We understand that you ascribe to someone the messianic status, son of David. That's a big and monumental uh, appellation. That's a big thing that you are saying. And it puts you if, you, if you allow that to happen, that puts you in opposition to the scribes and the Pharisees, to the leadership of Israel. And the crowd, what we understand, even in the surrounding context, the crowd still doesn't see Jesus as the Messiah. Even all, despite all the miracles, all the teaching, everything, the crowd does not see. Crowd does not see. Look uh, down at, ver- uh, well, you can remember back to chapter 16. You remember how chapter 16, verses 13 through 14 went. Uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, well, who do people say that I am? And effectively, the disciples answer, well, people think you're a great prophet. The crowds think you're a great prophet, which is true, but not far enough. And they haven't changed. Look at 21. We'll see this next week more, but look at 2111. The crowd said, this is the prophet, even as they're marching into Jerusalem. And we'll talk about that next week. What is the crowd's opinion of Jesus? The crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. They're willing to call Jesus a prophet, but they're not willing to, talk, uh, to ascribe to him the name of the Son of God, the Son of David. It is a big move. And there's irony in this. There's irony in this. There was irony way back in chapter 9 that the people who are least likely to see who Jesus is and know that he is the Son of David the, mess, the ultimate Davidic king, they're the people who see. And the people who are most likely to see who Jesus is, the crowds who have witnessed all his miracles, who have heard his teaching, do not see. They are blind. And this cry, Lord, have mercy on a son of David, we saw it back in chapter 9, and then in chapter 9, uh, Jesus understood that's the cry of faith. That's what's at issue in chapter 9 with the first blind men. Lord, have mercy on a son of David. Do you believe I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord. According to your faith, let it be done to you. That's the cry of faith. And we see it again, not only with the two blind men, we see it with the Canaanite woman in chapter 15, the outsider, the one least likely to acknowledge that uh, Jesus is the son of David. Yet in chapter 15, she, this outsider calls him the son of David, recognizes who he is, and persistently calls says, Lord, have mercy on me, son of David, have help me, Lord. Even after she's put, pushed away and rebuffed by Jesus, she keeps coming out of faith because she knows who Jesus is as the son of David, and she is ultimately blessed because of it. And here in chapter 20, it's not that the blind men just call out once, Lord, have mercy on me, son of David. They call out twice. It is the persistence of true and genuine faith, seeing who Jesus is as the son of David, and acting based on that knowledge. See, that's the reality of faith. Faith is not just a mental assent to facts. Now, mental assent to facts are necessary. But fundamentally, where faith starts is seeing... It's, it's not about faith in facts. It's about faith in a person. You, faith has a transaction with a person. 
And so if you're going to have faith in someone, if you're going to rely, if you're going to entrust yourself to a person, you have to know who that person is. You have to know and start with the identity of that person, which is why it is necessary for Israel, for anyone, Gentile or uh, Israelite, to start with the reality that Jesus is the son of David. He is the ultimate messianic king. He is the rightful ruler of this world. Every knee will bow before him. That is what it means to be the son of David. So the question to you is this, do you confess like these blind people? Do you see who Jesus is? Do you see that he's the son of David? Is that just a kind of a weird mental category in your mind? Or do you acknowledge, do you confess it? Do you swear allegiance? When you, what does it mean to confess Jesus to be the son of David? It means that you recognize that he is the rightful king over you. He is your rightful Lord and master. He is the rightful ruler of this world over nations and kingdoms. He will be the one who establishes peace in the world and will judge those who are his enemies. It means that you acknowledge that he is God in human flesh. It means that he can heal anything and that nothing is, more, is beyond him. He can heal anything And he will do so. He has come one time to save his people from their sins, to die, to suffer, to die, to rise again in place of his people for their sins. And he will come again to judge the world and to establish a righteous and good kingdom. Do you acknowledge that that is who Jesus of Nazareth is, the son of David? And do you, or do you hide it when you go out and about in the world? And you don't want to talk about Jesus. You don't want to talk about how he's going to judge people. You don't want to talk about how he's going to rule the world. Do you readily proclaim Jesus' identity or do you hide it? When the crowd pushes against you, say, be quiet. Do you shout out all the more, Jesus, have mercy on us, son of David. And the question is, do you... Do you actually see who Jesus is in his identity and what that means as son of David? And do you act on it? Do, and the acting on it here is the action of these two blind men, the cry of faith, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. Because friends, we all need mercy. We are all sinners. We are all rebels against the king of heaven. We are all rebels against the God of this world who has created us to worship and to acknowledge him. We do not love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We do not. Every second of every day, we do not reach to that level, and thereby we have offended an infinitely worthy God, slapped him in the face. Sin is not just doing naughty things. It's not a mistake. It's not a sickness. It is rebellion against the King of kings and Lord of lords and friends, he will come and judge every single person who is a rebel against him unless you surrender, unless you lay down arms, unless you repent and say, I'm done living for sin, I'm done living for myself, I'm done trying to make myself be Lord and master. I surrender. I bow the knee to King Jesus And you need to have a dealing with him. You need to just do that in abstract. Jesus has died and he has risen again. He is at the right hand of God this moment. And the only way you are getting 
to enjoy God for all eternity is if you cry out to him, not to me, not to your neighbor, not in some weird sort of abstract formula in your mind, but to him, the living Christ, unless you cry out to him like these blind men, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. And the question is, well, how is Jesus going to respond to that plea? Well, let's look at the second part of the text, verses 32 through 34. Has Jesus opened your eyes? Follow him into suffering and conquest. What's interesting in verses 31, uh, uh, 29 through 31 is that you've essentially got two characters. Jesus is kind of distant. He's, you know, he's moving, but the characters are the blind men and the crowd, and the crowd's trying to silence the blind men. But what, how is Jesus going to respond to this? Verse 32. And stopping, standing still, you can just imagine he's marching, he's about to ready to make this 3,500 foot to step, and he just stops. Hasn't said anything, he just stops, stands still. Jesus called them, the idea is he summoned them, and said, what do you want me to do for you? Now, isn't that a very interesting question? It's interesting for multiple reasons. One, if you go back to chapter 9, in this similar sort of situation where the blind men, two blind men, are following him into a house and crying out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They go into the house, and Jesus, he just, he, what does he ask? He asks the question, or do you believe that I'm able to do this for you? In other words, Jesus already understands what they're asking for. Well, likely he understands what they're asking for here, too. So why does he ask the question? Why does he ask the question when he already knows he already knows that they're asking to be healed from blindness. Why does he do it? Two reasons, I think. One, this is public. It's in front of a bunch of people. And he is seeking to draw out their faith. Just like in chapter 9, right? He, he didn't answer their plea right away. He went into a house. He asked them, Are you, do you believe I'm able to do this? And they said, yes. So I think some of it is Jesus is trying to draw out their faith. But there's another reason. Matthew is using similar language to what was just said in 20, verse 21. You remember James and John and their mom? Their mom comes up, Mrs. Ebony comes up, bows before Jesus with her sons, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and verse 21, and he said to her, what do you want? Very similar question. Again, when you see similarities in a narrative text, you want to compare and contrast. Well, what was the request of James and John? The request of James and John was like, uh, Jesus, we know we're going to sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, but actually we would like left-hand seat and right-hand seat. We would like rank two and we would like rank three. And it's not so much that it was wrong for them to want to be great, but Jesus had to say, well, you're thinking about greatness all wrong. What is greatness? Greatness is service. And he had to do that. But compare and contrast that with what the blind men are asking. What do you want me to do for you? Verse 33, they said to him, Lord, in order that we, our eyes might be opened. 
And what's interesting here, this is, this is even more interesting. You can't see this in English, but in the original text, their answer is marked. It's like it's highlighted. And you're like, why did, it, why did Matthew highlight the response? This is like the most obvious response from two blind men ever. Like, what do we want? Well, we want our eyes to be open. Like, well, Jesus knows that. The blind men know that. And yes, they're expressing their faith, but why does Matthew highlight their response? And the reason is, I believe, how blindness has functioned in Matthew's narrative up to this point. Because when you go back, even to back to the first healing of the two blind men in chapter 9, Matthew is using the idea of blindness and even physical blindness to talk about spiritual blindness. The irony in chapter 9 was that two blind men saw Jesus to be the Messiah. They Just from hearing, from hearing, they know that Jesus is the Messiah when everything else around them that has all the advantages, the crowd, even the disciples, do not, or do not as openly. And blindness... Blindness gets developed in Matthew. You remember Matthew eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus is praying to the Father, and what does he say? I thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to little children. It's the Father who has to reveal the Son. And even more, go to Matthew 13. You can turn back to Matthew 13. The idea of blindness is not just operating at a physical level, it's operating at a, at a spiritual level. Matthew 13, the the parables of the kingdom. And he tells his first parable, and the disciples are like, why are you talking to them in parables? And Jesus explains, but notice how he explains it, verse 13 in chapter 13. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their, eyes they can barely, uh, with their ears they can barely hear. With their eyes they have, they're closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, the eyes of the disciples, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Israel is spiritually blind. They can see all the miracles. They can hear all the teaching. But unless they become disciples, unless God the Father grants them sight to see the Son, unless this, um, they come to Jesus to have their eyes opened, Israel is blind. Turn to Matthew 15. Again, I'm just showing you that blindness is functioning at two levels. Yes, there's the physically blind, and Jesus heals them, but Matthew is using that as an example of, yeah, Israel is spiritually blind. 15 verse 12, and just a little bit of context here. Jesus has just corrected the Pharisees and the scribes for holding to the traditions of men over God's law, and he's corrected them. And look at what happens in verse 12. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? 
And he answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. And what is Jesus saying here? The leadership, the spiritual leadership is blind. And not only are they blind, they don't know God, actually. They have all of the advantages. They have the scriptures, but they're abusing them. They don't actually know God. They're blind. But not only them, the people that they lead are blind. The blind leading the blind, which means what? Who are the, if the Pharisees and scribes are the leaders, the blind guides, who are they leading who are blind? Israel, the crowds. The crowds are still blind, as blind as the Pharisees and scribes are. Oh, they may not be in active opposition to Jesus like the scribes and the Pharisees are. They might still be hanging around for the goodies and for Jesus' teaching, but they are nonetheless blind. You see, there's, the, there's spiritual blindness that looks like things like atheism, hardcore atheism, where you're just running as hard as you can in active opposition to God, or like hypocrisy, you are religious, but uh, you twist Scripture and the things of God for your own ends, like the scribes and Pharisees. But then there's another type of blindness, and it's equally as blind if you're just apathetic. The apathetic, the crowds, and the actively opposed, the scribes and Pharisees, equally as blind and equally as damned, apart from crying out, have mercy on us, Lord, son of David. Why is Matthew highlighting their request? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be open. I think what he's doing is Matthew's highlighting the blind man's request because it is the right sort of thing to request of Jesus if he is indeed recognized as the son of David. If you recognize Jesus as the son of David, then you must ask for your eyes to be opened. Israel needs to ask that. Lord, let our eyes be opened. Israel's need and the continuing need of the disciples is to have their eyes open, which can only happen through the sun. You see, what's interesting, does, do, this, do the disciples have their eyes open? Yes, they do. Jesus said that in Matthew 13. The disciples have their eyes opened, and yet we also see, even in things like the transfiguration, their eyes still aren't fully opened they still need their eyes open. So the request for Jesus, the son of David, to open your eyes from spiritual blindness is not a one-time act. It is an ongoing request for Jesus to open one's eyes, to see who he truly is, to see who his father truly is, so that you can act accordingly, act in faith, act in worship, act in mission. It's very interesting that Matthew puts this episode how does it finish out? Verse 34. And Jesus, in pity, in compassion, gut-level compassion, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Now, this is very interesting, especially when you compare it with chapter 9. Remember what happened in chapter 9? Where did the healing take place? In a house. It was secret. Where are we at in chapter 20? We're on a road with a big crowd around. This is as open as it gets. And Jesus just made the signature messianic move in front of this big old crowd. In chapter 9, Jesus says, say nothing. Do you notice how it ends here? He doesn't tell him anything. He just, 
He doesn't correct them about using that title. He doesn't say to not say anything because it's all open at this point. It wasn't open in chapter 9, but now everything's out in the open in chapter 20. In chapter 9, what happened to the two blind men? Well, they had faith, but they actually disobeyed Jesus' words to say nothing, and then they departed from Jesus. They didn't follow Jesus. They departed, and they disobeyed his word. What happens here? They follow. Why is Matthew doing this, putting this here? Well, it actually happened, but but what is happening? Remember what I said back in chapter 9, why is Jesus suppressing the use of the title Son of David? It's because of the common misconception of who the Messiah is. And what has Jesus been telling his disciples from chapter 16 on? I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. And that's been the theme, the repetition up to this point. And now Jesus, right one day away from Jerusalem, he heals two blind men, makes the signature messianic move, all in the open, doesn't, say, doesn't silence anyone, and the blind men follow him. Because what Matthew's cluing us in on is what Jesus is about to do shows him, completes the picture of him being the son of David, going in Jerusalem, suffering, dying, rise again. He's also showing what the proper response is. Faith and following discipleship, obedience, following into what? Where is Jesus going? He's going to Jerusalem, but he's going to suffering, death, and resurrection. And if you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to have your eyes open and follow Jesus, then you also will follow him into suffering, death, and resurrection. And it won't matter because of who Jesus is as the son of David. You see, the blind men and the children chapter 19 and chapter 20, are the exemplary disciples. They're the people, the children approaching Jesus in utter dependence, the blind men in like manner, seeing and asking for sight, are exemplary disciples, coupled with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, into his cross, his cross work, his atoning work, which he is about to do. The question to you is, are you spiritually blind? Now, if you say no, even if you're a Christian here this morning, or you proclaim to be a Christian, if you say no, I'm afraid you're in danger. The right answer to that question always is yes. It always needs to be, yes, I'm spiritually blind. How do I know that? I mean, apart from what Matthew is saying here and the themes he's drawing together, go to John. Go to the Gospel of John. Similar sort of situation. Not two blind men, but one. Jesus heals a blind man, and then there's this inquiry by the Pharisees and scribes, who healed him, who do you say that he is? So there's this identity issue, kind of like what is in our passage. And eventually, the blind man realizes who Jesus is, like um, he confesses him, and he gets put out of the synagogue. And then Jesus finds him. Look at verse 35, and look at how Jesus does this. Uh, John 9, 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. They cast the blind man, or the blind man who's now been healed, out. Because they confess, he, uh, he confessed Jesus to be the Christ. 
And having found him out, after having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Now catch this, verse 39, Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said to him, are we also blind? Meaning what? They think they see, and they're kind of being offended that Jesus is calling them blind. And notice what Jesus says, verse 41, Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. The beginning of spiritual life, the beginning of spiritual perception is to acknowledge that you don't see, that you're blind. It's like that plane that we started the story with, right? Um, They thought they saw, they had their human perception, they ignored all the gauges, and what? They were hurtling towards destruction. It's only when they broke through the clouds and saw the true reality of things that they were able to act appropriately. If you say, no, I'm not spiritually blind, you're in danger. You're in danger. You may be like the crowd hanging around Jesus and hanging around the church and thinking you're okay. You may be very religious, and you may say, I'm not spiritually blind, I'm okay. There's a very powerful book by a Puritan called The Almost Christian Discovered. Uh, Very good read, very uncomfortable Rightfully so. There's a right sort of discomfort. And I want you to read, the idea of the almost Christian is that you're almost a Christian, but you're not a Christian. And the idea is an almost Christian is blind. And what Matthew Mead, the writer of that book, is trying to do is he's trying to wake blind people up. Let me just read for you some of the table of contents heading of this book. And how close you can get to Jesus and not have him. A man may have much knowledge and yet be but almost a Christian. A man may have great and eminent gifts, yea, spiritual, and yet be but almost a Christian. A man may have a high profession of religion, be much in external duties of godliness, and yet be but almost a Christian. A man may go far in opposing his sin and yet be but almost a Christian. A man may hate sin and yet be but almost a Christian. A man may make great vows and promises, strong purposes and resolutions against sin, and yet be but almost a Christian. A man may maintain a strife and combat against sin and himself, and yet be but almost a Christian. A man may be a member of a church of Christ, a member of the church of Christ, and yet be but almost a Christian. A man may have great hopes of heaven, and yet be but almost a Christian. And again, over and over and over and over. Because what is Matthew B. doing? He's doing the same thing that Matthew is doing. Um, are you blind? Are you blind? And you have to answer yes. Even if you're in Christ, yes, your eyes have been opened by God's grace to see Christ in an initial sense, but the journey of faith is a continual asking the same thing that the blind men are asking. Have mercy, son of David, open my eyes. Do you perceive your blindness and do you call out to Jesus for mercy? And the great, amazing news is, is like in this passage, Jesus loves to answer that call. 
if you will call out to him for mercy, saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. I've been a rebel against you, trying to live my own life and rule my own life and follow my own desires and ways. And I've even been close to you. I've come to church for many years, and yet I've been a rebel in my heart. If you will lay down arms, you repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins in your place and is, lived, had a lived-in flesh righteousness in your place, and you beg for mercy, the great king will grant it. He loves to do so. And some of you may, you know, from those titles, if you're a believer here today, maybe you have a tender conscience, and you hear like, well, am I real? Am I real? The answer to that question, am I real, is always the, 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 the plea, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David, and the knowledge that Jesus is good, and he will answer, and he will have mercy on you, and he will give you grace. Finally, are you following Jesus? It's not about saying a prayer, lifting a hand, walking an aisle. It is about a life of faith, a life pursuing Jesus in obedience and following him on mission, following him even to suffering and death and resurrection because of who he is. Your greatest treasure in life is Jesus Christ, and you will follow him to the ends of the earth, to death and beyond, into the resurrection. Plead with Jesus to open your eyes and follow him as the son of David into suffering and conquest. Let us pray. Jesus, you are the son of David. You are the rightful ruler of this world. You are the rightful king over every single person in this room. You are the king who will bring judgment and yet will grant amnesty if we will repent and place our faith in you and ask and plead for mercy. Thank you that you are merciful. Thank you that you are compassionate. Thank you that you are kind. Thank you for those who in this room have called out for mercy and they have received it because you are good and we praise you. Oh Lord, open our eyes. You've initially opened them for those who are Christians here this morning, and yet we continually need our eyes open to see you and your glory again and again every day for the whole remainder of our lives so that we might persevere into death, trusting in you. Help us, O oh Lord God, we ask. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.